the Gospel of John and chapter 15, please. We'll be reading from uh, 1 John later, same passage that we read and part of which we studied this morning. Uh, but I want to read this uh, section of John 15 as uh, a complementary passage to what we're going to be looking at from 1 John this evening. John chapter 15 and beginning at verse number 12. It's the uh, ESV translation from which I'm reading uh, this evening. Jesus is speaking here to his disciples and he says to them, verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do What I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, The word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me, hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So reads God's word, and we pray that he will bless this reading to our hearts. Our second psalm of praise is... Part 8b of the 119th Psalm, part this morning, First uh, John chapter uh, 3, First John chapter 3, and we'll read together the first uh, few verses of that chapter. First John chapter 3 and beginning at verse number 1. 
see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This morning in our study of 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, we saw how John reminded his readers of two of the wonderful privileges that they and indeed that all believers enjoy. Those privileges were that they are objects of the love of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us. And secondly, they were members of the family of God, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Now one of the reasons why John wanted to remind his readers of these great truths, was in order that he might further encourage them to live godly lives. Uh, One of the goals that John had in view when he set out to write this letter was that those to whom he was writing might turn away from, might strive against, and might increasingly get the victory over sin. In chapter 2 verse 1 he states that as one of the main purposes of his letter. I write these things to you so that you will not sin. And if you know anything about the background of 1 John, you'll know that it was because there was a false teaching that was arising that was uh, in some ways encouraging antinomianism, which was basically, we're saved, we can live as we please. And John's argument is, no, we can't. We are to live according to uh, God's standards. And in a sense that is living as you please because that is what should be pleasing us. And here in the opening verse of 
the third chapter, John provides his readers with both the rationale and also the motivation for living a holy life. The fact that they were children of God. And what John is basically saying is, who they were was to determine how they lived. John is saying, you are children of God. Now, that being the case, be what you are. The way to get the victory over sin, the way to grow in godliness, is to keep reminding yourself of who you are and to live accordingly. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, I do feel that this is perhaps the greatest weakness of all in the Christian church, that we fail to realise who we are. Most of our failure to live the Christian life, as we should, is due to this cause. If only we realised who we are, then the problem of conduct would almost be automatically solved. It is our failure to realise who we are that causes us to stumble on this question of moral conduct and behaviour. If once we saw ourselves as depicted here, there would be no need to persuade us to live the Christian life. And he goes on to say that the more I read the New Testament, the more I'm impressed by the fact that every appeal for conduct and good living and behaviour is always made in terms of our position. The Bible never asks us to do anything without reminding us, first of all, of who we are. You always get doctrine before practical application. That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. And what that means in practical terms is this. Uh, Here you are tempted to engage in some sin or other. Uh, Maybe to tell a lie. Maybe to gossip about somebody. Maybe to indulge some lustful desire. Or to put somebody down with a a derogatory uh, remark. Or maybe to lose your temper. But you think to yourself, I can't do that. Because I am a child of God. And such conduct would be to disgrace the name of my Father in heaven. Or you're reading your Bible and it convicts you that some aspect of your behaviour is not Christ-like. And so you think to yourself, I'm a child of God. I can't behave like that anymore as a member of God's family. Because in behaving like that, I'm denying who I am. Your new identity motivates you with respect to godly living. And it's to the theme of holiness, the theme of godly living, sanctification, call it whatever you wish, that John turns his reader's thoughts in the following verses of this third chapter. Uh, The most basic and fundamental reason and the primary motivation for them living a holy life has been set before them in verse 1. You're objects of God's love, members of God's family. And in verse 2, he gives them a further reason and a further motivation for godly living. And that is the appearance of Christ, the prospect of Christ's return. But before we come to look at verse 2, let's go back again to verse 1 that we were looking at this morning. Uh, And as we 
do so, we want to think about those words that we didn't take time to look at. He says, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And here I want to base my first point this evening. Uh, In the words of John here we see, first of all, the inevitable opposition that John's readers would encounter. The inevitable opposition that John's readers would encounter. John is going to go on, as we're going to see in a minute, to speak about the subject of holiness. And here, at the end of this first verse, he sets that, as it were, in the context in which the life of holiness has to be lived. It is to be lived in the day-to-day environment of being surrounded by and interacting with people who do not understand Christians. John Stott says of those who are God's children, the world does not, or sorry, John says rather, of those who are not Christians, the world does not know us. The world does not know us. Now when John talks here, of course, about the world, he's referring to those around who are not believers. Those people with whom his readers uh, would work and socialise and meet and interact with in the course of their daily life. And when he says that they do not know us, he means they don't understand us. They just don't get it when it comes to our Christian faith, and more particularly when it comes to our relationship with God and the way we live. They do not and they cannot grasp either the nature of our relationship with God, nor how important that relationship is to us. They can't fathom that this relationship is so special to us and so important to us that it is this this relationship that governs our whole outlook on life. It is this relationship which dictates how we live. To unbelievers, we are strange. To unbelievers, we are somewhat weird in our beliefs and in how we live. They're not just on the same wavelength of us. The world does not know us. The Apostle Peter echoes John's sentiments here in 1 Peter 4 and 4 when he says of unbelievers, they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. In other words, they just can't understand why you don't live like them. And why you don't get up to and why you don't enjoy the same sinful lifestyle that they enjoy. Not that they say it is sinful, of course. They just don't get it. And because they don't understand Christians and because they think Christians are strange and weird, they very often react by making fun of them, by verbally abusing them, or even, as has been the experience of many Christians, of persecuting them in one way or another. Our Lord, of course, forewarned his disciples that this was what it was going to be like for them as they lived in the world as children of God, as followers of Jesus. That's why I read from John 15 earlier. If the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. 
If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words that I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. Well, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. So, folks, because of who we are, children of God, and because of how that affects the way in which we think, and because that affects what we believe, and because that affects how we live, the world doesn't know us. It thinks we're mad. Fanatics. When we speak to unbelievers, maybe in our family, maybe friends, about keeping the Lord's Day holy, and on that account saying, no, we're not going to go to a sporting event on the Sabbath day. Uh, No, we're not going to uh, go out for a meal to a restaurant on the Sabbath day. Uh, When I say to my friends in the running club, and they ask me, have you ever run the London Marathon or the New York Marathon? I say, no, those races are on the Lord's Day. Um, Because I'm a Christian, I don't run at all on the Lord. They think you're from another planet. They think to themselves, what is this? They just can't understand our way of thinking. And it's the same with regards to other aspects of godly living. Honesty. Sexual purity. Giving tithes of our income to the Lord and his work. Opposition towards same-sex relationships, gay marriage, opposition to abortion, to the national lottery. The world does not know us. We're living in an environment where the way people think and the way people behave and the standards they apply and the goals that they're pursuing are radically different from our standards and our goals and how we think and behave as children of God. And invariably where you get such a clash of values and ideas and goals and beliefs, you will find that this usually leads to some form or other of opposition and conflict. Now, here's the point. If everyone around us was thinking on the same wavelength as ourselves... If everyone that we had contact with in every sphere of life every day was a child of God and they, like us, were seeking to live their lives to please God, their Father, and their standards and their values and their goals in life were all God-centered, then, of course, that would make living a godly life for us easier. It would encourage godliness. Those of you who have been to um, the holiday in Kesselwell or Termenfeck and those other places where we all get together as covenanters and you spend a whole week together. It's wonderful. You're living in an environment where everyone is seeking to honour the Lord. And it helps you so much in your Christian life. Imagine if you were living in that environment 24-7. But we are living in a world where the general atmosphere of daily life is not conducive to holiness. 
And it's hard to live life, a life of holiness, in that context. You get very little, and in some some cases and situations, absolutely no encouragement to live a life of holiness from those around you. Maybe with those with whom you work. Maybe with those with whom you socialise. If anything, they would try to encourage you to be less holy and more like them. The inevitable opposition John's readers would encounter. It happened back then. And it's something that we experience today. And as we are called to live a life of holiness, we must realise that we're called to live that life of holiness not merely when we come together in our little groups on the Lord's Day or at the midweek and everybody around us is Christians and we're all nice to each other and it's great. No, yes, we're to do it there. Of course we are. But we're to do it in the world as well. We're to do it in our homes. And it's not easy to do it in our homes. I wouldn't like you to come and measure my sanctification by what you see in my house at times. Not so bad now with the kids away, thankfully. But, <laughs> but, but you know what I'm saying? Sanctification takes place in an environment that doesn't encourage sanctification. But this is what John is calling his people to. The world does not know you. You're living in this hostile environment. But then notice, secondly, the glorious prospect John's readers could expect. The glorious prospect John's readers could expect. Verse 2 John repeats for emphasis the fact that his readers were children of God. You'll see that there. He wants to, as it were, hammer that truth home. As God's children, you're to behave as such. More and more, you're to become like your elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was one of the greatest reasons as to why God had set his love upon them and saved them and given them his Holy Spirit. That, as Paul puts it, they would be conformed to the image of his dear son. And John is saying in these verses, one day this great work is going to be completed. Dear friends, now we are the children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known but we know that when he appears we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. A couple of things just to draw to your attention from what John says here. First of all, we see that John reminds his readers that there are things about our future state that God has chosen not to reveal to us. John says, what we will be has not yet been made known. I took part yesterday in a funeral of a member of Convoy Congregation and there were various questions that were asked and whenever a loved one dies and even maybe in a different context from a bereavement questions are often asked about our future state what it's going to be like when we are fully and finally glorified we might like might to we might like to know, for example, uh, what the resurrection body is going to be like. What age am I going to be in heaven? Am I going to be in my 50s? Or am I going to be what I was like in my 20s? Or am I going to be what I was like in my teens? How are we going to relate to each other in our final glorified state? 
and many other questions, but God in his wisdom and for his own secret purpose has chosen not to give us answers in advance to such questions. These things have not been made known. And because they have not been made known, we should not engage in fruitless speculation and debate about such things. Far, far better to concentrate upon and to understand more fully and to live in the light of what God has revealed. We see now as in a mirror dimly. Now we know only in part. We don't know all the details about what heaven's going to be like and so on. But we don't need to know such things. That's the point. If we did need to know such things, God would have revealed it to us. What we are to concentrate upon is what we do know. And what do we know? According to John here. Well, one of the things we do know is that Jesus is coming back again. We know that when he appears, the world in which John and his readers were living was a world in which it was difficult to live a godly life as we've seen. They were misunderstood. They were misrepresented, these believers. They were opposed. The world was hostile to them. But what they were to remember as they lived in that environment was it's not always going to be like this. Jesus is coming back. One day there's going to be a glorious change. A glorious change in us and a glorious change in the world. Because the world is going to be redeemed, not just us. One day something wonderful is going to happen that will bring about a glorious change. And that's something is that Jesus is going to return. And when he does return, his people will see him in all his glory. When he appears, we shall see him as he is. This was the glorious prospect that John's readers and all of God's people could anticipate and which they had to keep in view. One day, the Lord was coming again. But you see, John doesn't mention this merely as an abstract truth that they were to believe. He mentions it for a practical purpose. And the practical purpose for which he mentions it is that they would be motivated in the light of the coming of Christ to live a godly life. Whenever Jesus returns... All of us will be made like him. We shall be made perfectly holy. Just as he is perfectly holy. At that moment, the work of sanctification will be perfected in each of us. If we're still alive. And no matter how hard we strive, no matter how much progress we make in the sphere of godly living, none of us in this life, will reach a state of being fully sanctified. But when Jesus returns, that process will be completed. 
John Stott says, In that moment, by the same grace that has made us, in, made us his children, we shall be made like him. At that moment, the process which began when we first trusted Christ will come to its fulfillment and the image of God and his children will be fully restored. Isn't that a tremendous message of assurance and encouragement to these believers as they live in a godless, hostile world where they're misunderstood, where they're opposed, where they are striving to live according to their status as children of God, that one day Jesus will come again and they will be like him. And that leads us nicely into our third and final point this evening, which is the godly purity John's readers were to exhibit. Now look at verse 3 in the light of verse 2. Everyone who has this hope, what hope? The hope of Christ's return. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. This truth that one day Christ is coming again and one day they're going to be like Jesus was a message that was intended to give his readers assurance and confidence about the future, but it was not meant to make them in any way complacent. They weren't to say to themselves, oh, Jesus is returning and I'm going to be perfect then, so I can wait until that's happening. And it doesn't matter how I live now. No. Far from it. This was meant to be a spur to them to live more Christ-like lives now. If their future expectation was centred on Christ, and they knew that they were going to be made like Christ, then that ultimate goal would be something which they should be, and indeed where a true work of grace has taken place, would be pursuing now. I want you to notice how all-inclusive John's statement is here. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself. John does not leave the door open here for any exceptions. He says, if you're a child of God, if you're a Christian, if your ultimate hope is to see Christ returning and to be like Christ when he does return, then in the here and now, you will purify yourself. You will strive to live a godly life. John doesn't say some Christians who have this hope purify themselves. He doesn't say those Christians who are really committed Christians purify themselves. He doesn't say those covenanters really purify themselves. He says, everyone who has this hope. Everyone. This is something that is true of every genuine believer. John doesn't say everyone who has this hope ought to purify themselves. Everyone who has this hope does purify themselves. 
He is saying this is what happens in the life of the person who has truly become a child of God. This, if you like, is another birthmark of a child of God. John, throughout his first letter, identifies certain birthmarks of the child of God. They obey God's commands. They love their brothers. They do not love the world. They purify themselves. And notice also that in speaking about purifying oneself, John uses the present tense of the verb here, signifying that this purifying of oneself, whatever that might entail, is something that one is constantly engaged in. I suppose the force of it could be brought across by reading it like this. He keeps on purifying himself. It's an ongoing, continuous process for the child of God. As long as the believer's eyes are fixed upon and his hope is centred in one day seeing Christ and be like him, that believer will keep on seeking to live a godly life. The child of God will never in this life reach a stage of being able to say, well, I've made it. I'm now fully sanctified. I don't have to purify myself anymore and fight against sin anymore. No, it's an ongoing, continuous process. In the same way that the believer can't say, well, it doesn't matter how I believe and I don't need to worry about holiness because I'm going to be like Christ. No, if you are a child of God, you will keep on purifying yourself. Then I ask the question, does it, what does this mean? What does it mean to purify oneself. Well, when we think of something being impure, what do we think of? Well, we think of something that contains elements which taint or pollute the product. For example, whenever gold is mined, it's not pure. It's put through a process. It's into the furnace, it's heated up, And that's done in order to purify it. The process of putting the gold into the furnace brings all the dross to the top. That is then taken off. And what you're left with is a much more pure piece of gold than when it first went into the furnace. And what they do is they take it and they stick it into the furnace again and they refine it further. And more dross is taken off. And the more that's done, the more pure it becomes. You're taking away the impurities, the things that taint. Take water. All the water that we drink goes through a purification process before we drink it. And that process filters out and it gets rid of harmful contaminants so that the water we drink from our taps is, generally speaking, of a high purification standard. But then you've got some people who want it to be even more pure than it is when it comes out of their taps. And so what they do is they fill up these big filter things and stick them in their fridge and something happens whereby the water goes through a further filtration process so that what they drink is even purer than what comes out of the tap. And where there is no purification system in place, And where the water that is drunk contains all sorts of pollutants, 
those pollutants can pose a health risk to anyone who drinks that water. The pollutants are dangerous. So when John talks about purifying oneself, in spiritual terms, this involves, in negative terms, the removal from our lives of that which should not be there. Those spiritual and moral pollutants which we know as sin. Things like jealousy, resentment, pride, deceitfulness, anger, impatience, grudge-bearing, laziness, sexual immorality. And the list can go on. And that's why Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, he says, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. It's a different word, but it's a similar idea. Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You'll notice that this process of purification is something that the child of God is involved in. It's something with respect to which the Christian must be proactive. In other words, it involves effort on our part. Now it's true that the process of becoming increasingly purified, of becoming increasingly holy, of being sanctified, if you like, is something which God by his Spirit brings about in the believer. One of the Lord's requests in John 17 in the great high priestly prayer is sanctify them through thy truth. And he was speaking to God. He wants God to sanctify them. The work is ascribed to God. First Peter 1 and verse 2. Peter speaks of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Second Thessalonians 2.13 Paul speaks of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And you get it also in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 where Paul prays may, the God, may God himself sanctify you completely. And all these passages speak about God sanctifying the believer. But whilst God is undoubtedly the author and the prime mover and initiator in our sanctification we as Christians are by no means passive in this aspect of our salvation we are to be actively engaged in and cooperate in this process and that's why when you come to Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 and 13 which Joel's going to be preaching on on Thursday evening if he's got a sermon finished for then we read Paul's words continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling you work it out And then he says this, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. God is at work, but we are also at work. Many people's daily lives reflect their hopes and their ambitions. What they anticipate what they're looking forward to what they're expecting 
in the future, drives them and motivates them in the present. Think of the Olympic Games of this year. And you've got a phenomenal degree of commitment on the part of athletes as they fix their hope on that podium standing there in the number one spot and having the gold medal placed around their neck. That's what they're looking forward to. That's what is driving them. That's what they're aiming for. And for years before it, they give themselves completely to it. And they go into strict training and they deprive themselves of things and they push themselves to the limit. And yet, despite all their efforts, the athlete may never actually achieve their goal. They might come in fourth. Or they might come in last. The businessman, the entrepreneur who spends vast amount of time and expends vast amount of energy as he looks forward to seeing his company or his business or his project taking off and earning him millions and yet they might up, end up disappointed and illusion, disillusioned. Friends, as children of God, we have a tremendous future. We have a hope which will not disappoint us. We have something that is guaranteed. One day, Jesus is going to return. One day we are going to see him. And one day you and I will be made like him. And that future hope, combined with the knowledge of who we are, children of God, should motivate us to give ourselves wholeheartedly to living lives that are becoming more and more like what one day we are going to be. If we're striving to do so, then we can be sure that we are indeed children of God. Because everyone who has this hope purifies himself, herself, even as he is pure. And can I say to you, if you are not striving to purify yourself, if you are not seeking to grow in holiness, then you need to take stock and you need to ask yourself, am I really a child of God? Because one of the marks of a child of God is that that child of God purifies themselves. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know Him. Friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known but we know that when He appears we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies Himself just as he is pure. And as we go into 2013, may God help each of us 
to become more and more conformed to the image of our elder brother, to the image of his son, because in so doing, that will give us encouragement and assurance that we are indeed reflecting the nature of the family to which we belong, the family of God, because we're children of God, loved by God. May God be pleased to write his word upon our hearts this evening. Amen.